What is going on, sports fans, and welcome in to Season 4, Episode 13 of the Jack of All Trades Sports Podcast presented by Anchor. And we've got a lot to get to on this week's show. We're going to start with the MLB. The All-Star break is here. The All-Star Game and Home Run Derby have happened. I'll recap some of the best and biggest moments from both the Midsummer Classic and the Home Run Derby. Talk about how the Cleveland Guardians performed and much, much more. We'll also preview the second half of the MLB season for the Cleveland Guardians and some other storylines surrounding MLB, including the future of two of baseball's brightest stars and their respective teams. And that is, of course, Juan Soto in the Washington Nationals and Aaron Judge in the New York Yankees. We also got some NFL talk to get to today, largely surrounding the Cleveland Browns and Deshaun Watson. Mike Florio dropped a couple of reports that indicate Deshaun Watson will not be suspended for a full season and that the range could be two to eight games, what that means for the Browns, how I can see that playing out, and do the Browns need to bring in any additional quarterbacks to either compete with Jacoby Brissett or back up Jacoby Brissett. So we got a lot to get to. It's going to be a Cleveland-heavy episode today, but we're also going to talk about some other big storylines, specifically in the MLB and the NFL. But first, as always, this episode is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Creation tools, editing tools, everything you need to make your very own podcast right from your phone or computer. And the best part about it is it's absolutely free. So if you have any interest at all in making your very own podcast, here's what you need to do. You need to download the free Anchor app from the Microsoft Store, App Store, or Google Play Store today, or go online to anchor.fm. That's anchor.fm. Today is Thursday, July 25th. Let's go. For episode 13 of the Jack of All Trades Sports Podcast. And we are going to start today with some Major League Baseball. Now, we are just wrapping up the All-Star break. The Home Run Derby was Monday night. The All-Star Game was Tuesday night. And man, oh man, what a week it was. There were some spectacular performances, some unforgettable moments. But we're going to start with the Cleveland Guardians like we always do. And the Guardians put up a very, very strong showing that should make Cleveland fans excited for the future of this organization. They had three All-Stars on Tuesday night playing the game. Andres Jimenez, of course, got the start for the American League at second base for the injured Jose Altuve. And Jimenez made the defensive play of the night. In the first inning, I believe the National League was up 1-0 or 2-0. Manny Machado hit a screamer that took a massive hop. And Jimenez leaped for the backhanded stop and then flipped the ball behind his back to Tim Anderson, and it started an incredible showtime, dazzling double play. It was the defensive play of the night. It had stars alike tweeting about it. Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs, tweeted about it, said how uh, impressive the play was. And a lot of people learned who Andre Semenez was, learned Andre Semenez's name from that double play that he had in the All-Star game. Unfortunately, Jimenez didn't do that well at the plate, but... That defensive play alone, I think, made it a great night for Andre Jimenez, who was making his first All-Star appearance, starting the All-Star game for the American League, and he became the youngest person to start the All-Star game as a second baseman since 1994, Roberto Alomar, who, of course, is a Hall of Famer, brother of Sandy Alomar. So that's a pretty cool stat and connection there for the Cleveland baseball organization. So Jimenez made the defensive play of the night, and Jose Ramirez did pretty well at the plate. He obviously did not start the All-Star game, finished second in the fan vote. But Jose, what did he do? He showed up and he hit the ball. He got a single, I believe, in the fourth inning, um... And then it was immediately followed by a Giancarlo Stanton 
two-run home run. So Jose got a run there. He got a single there. And then he got another at-bat, I believe, in the sixth inning. He got another single. So Jose had two at-bats. He had two hits. He was two for two. He had one run scored. Um, Jose, in his career in the All-Star Games, now hitting above 570, I believe. So he's always shown up in the big moments in the in the Midsummer Classic. And he showed up for the Guardians. Jose Ramirez showed that he's one of the best players in baseball and put up a good performance in front of the, a national audience. And he did pretty well at the Home Run Derby, too. We'll talk a little bit about little bit more about the derby after we get through this guardians run through at the all-star game but jose held his own in the home run derby although he was hitting right-handed which i think he should have been hitting left-handed but like i said we'll get to that and then that brings in my opinion the most impressive performance from a cleveland guardian in the all-star game on tuesday night and that is emmanuel classe i've said time and time again on this podcast i think emmanuel classe is the best closer in baseball definitely the best closer in the american league and he Proved it last night. He faced C.J. Crone. I, I I forget who the two other batters were, but he the the American League. Uh, Dusty Baker elected to pitch Emmanuel Classe the ninth inning. The American League was up three to two at this point, and um, they brought in Classe. Classe threw ten pitches, ten cutters. the The slowest cutter he threw was ninety seven point eight miles per hour. And Classe struck out the side. Two guys looking. I believe he got Kyle Schwarber and CJ Crone looking. And then he got the last guy swinging. So he, all, Classe was pumping gas. He was throwing 98, 99, 100, 101. He was flame throwing like he does time and time again for the Guardians against some of the best hitters in the National League. And he was one pitch away from an immaculate inning. Nine pitches. Not uh, 10 pitches, 9 strikes, 1 ball, 3 strikeouts, and he was pretty pumped up. And Emmanuel Classe called his own shot. He said before the All-Star game, I think Andre Knott asked him, you know, what do you want to do in the All-Star game? What are you looking forward to doing in the All-Star game? And Emmanuel Classe said, I want to pitch the ninth. I want to close it out for the American League, and I want to strike out everybody I face. And that's exactly what Emmanuel Classe did. And Classe proved that he is one of the best in my opinion, the best closer, maybe even the best relief pitcher in all of baseball. And Jose Ramirez and Andre Semenez proved that they are two of the most exciting players in baseball. Obviously, Jose is a proven veteran. That was his fourth career All-Star appearance. Andre Semenez, one of the younger guys in this All-Star game, but he made a good impression too. And one thing it shows is how good this Cleveland Guardians front office is in a number of different ways. And we're going to talk about Juan Soto coming up too because he's been the story of baseball over the last couple weeks. Not for what you might think, but it shows how good the Cleveland Guardians front office is in a different number of ways. You look at Jose Ramirez. He's a kid from the Dominican Republic. The Guardians signed him to their organization for $50,000 when he was 16 years old. He's now 29 years old, obviously, one of the best players in baseball, perennial MVP candidate. But when the Guardians got him, he was a raw, unproven talent, and he was a teenager. He was a kid. He was a high school-aged kid, 16 years old. The Guardians trusted him. They signed him to $50,000, and through the player development that the Guardians have in the minor leagues, in the major leagues, with Tito Francona coming in as the manager, Jose Ramirez has definitely blossomed into a player that I don't think the Guardians were expecting when they signed him when Jose Ramirez was 16 years old. He is one of the best players in Cleveland Indians, Cleveland Guardians history in my opinion. He signed an extension to stay here, play out his career as a Cleveland Guardian, and he is one of the best players, absolute best players in baseball, leads the American League in RBIs, close to the league lead in RBIs, and he's having another remarkable season. But that just shows how the Guardians front office has an eye for young talent and how they can develop it. And then the performances in the All-Star game of Andre Semenez and Emmanuel Classe show how good this Cleveland Guardians front office is at acquiring assets and not being afraid to trade away assets when it is time to trade them away. Two of the most iconic players in for the Cleveland Indians since Tito Francona has been the manager 
when they've had that success since 2013, have the most wins in the American League since 2013, were obviously Corey Kluber, a two-time Cy Young winner for the Indians, and Francisco Lindor, who I believe was a four-time All-Star for the Cleveland Indians. They both were anchors on the team that went to the World Series in 2016 and the team that won 102 games and went on that 22-game win streak in 2017. But the Cleveland, in the then-Cleveland Indians, uh, Chris Antonetti, Mike Shirinoff, they did not panic trying to extend these guys. They were not going to overpay for Francisco Lindor and Corey Kluber. And the return they got for Corey Kluber, who might I add, got traded to the Texas Rangers for Delino Shields, who didn't really work out for the Guardians, but also for Emmanuel Classe, who, like I said, is the best closer in baseball. Corey Kluber for the Texas Rangers only pitched one inning. So the Guardians traded Corey Kluber for one inning that the Rangers had him, and they got the best closer in baseball. They signed him to an extension. That is shows how good they are at spotting talent in potential trades. Then you look at the other trade, the Francisco Lindor trade. They got a number of prospects from the Mets. Obviously, Ahmed Rosario was supposed to be the headliner, and Ahmed Rosario has had a nice career here in Cleveland over these past two seasons. But Andre Jimenez, last season, he was in minor league in the minor leagues for the Columbus Clippers, trying to figure out his swing, trying to figure out a way to stick in the major leagues and on the Cleveland Indians roster last year. This season, the flip, the switch has flipped for Andre Jimenez. He is an elite defender playing second base. He also could play shortstop, but he is one of the clutchest hitters in the Guardians lineup. He's hitting about 296, 10 home runs, about 45 RBIs, and he made the All-Star game, started the All-Star game, and he's 23 years old. We've seen the light year in development he's had over last season to this season, and who's to... I think it's gonna get. He's gonna get even better. He's a young budding star, an all star in this league. And Francisco Lindor hasn't made an all star game in New York. And Lindor is also getting paid thirty million a year, and he's also six years older than Andre Semenes. I'm not saying Andre Semenes is as good as Frankie Lindor was in Cleveland, but all I'm gonna say is you're paying a lot less for a younger, supremely talented guy in Andre Semenes. So that just shows how good this Cleveland Guardians front office is and how great of a job they've done in both trading away assets when they feel like it's time, not panicking into extending guys, and also developing their homegrown talent. And that's why this Guardians team competes year in and year out and why they find themselves right now, as we're talking about the All-Star break, two games above 500 and only two games back of the Minnesota Twins for first place, despite being the youngest team in baseball. And let's get to that second half preview right now. The Cleveland Guardians start the second half of the season Friday at 8, 10 p.m. against the Chicago White Sox. And their first three series of the second half of the season, they're going to have 11 games in 10 days. And I think it's going to be very telling for a couple of reasons for this Cleveland Guardians team. Number one is if they are true playoff contenders, both for the wild card and the division this year. This team, this Guardians team, we've had high expectations for them. Not a lot of people had high expectations for this Guardians team coming into the season. But after seeing some of these rookies come in and contribute, like Steven Kwan, like an Oscar Gonzalez, after signing Jose Ramirez to that extension, and having him have one of the best first halves of the season he's ever had in his major league career. Getting some breakout performances from Josh Naylor, from Andre Semenez, in the pitching rotation from Tristan McKenzie. A lot of people have heightened expectations for this Guardians team. They have one of the best managers in baseball in Tito Francona. And they have some young talent that is producing immediately right now, which is kind of all you can ask for. But this team is ahead of schedule. This team is not supposed to be a World Series contender this year. And I know the Guardians will never say that publicly, but I've said it time and time again in this podcast. The Guardians this season, their main goal, number one, was not to win a World Series. It was to figure out what your young talent could do at the big league level, and it was to figure out who, which young talent, which rookies, which prospects you are absolutely sticking with, 
and which ones you feel comfortable moving on from. That's why you see guys like Steven Kwan, like Oscar Gonzalez, like Nolan Jones getting a shot at the big league level. Why you see guys like Bo Naylor getting a shot in AAA. The Guardians need to figure out which prospects they want to move forward with because this team has a lot of talented prospects. But the thing is, you only have a 40-man roster and you can't keep everybody. So that was goal number one this season. And the Guardians, they're the youngest team in Major League Baseball. Their average age is actually younger than any team in all of AAA. So this team is ahead of schedule in competing. They weren't supposed to be two games above 500 at the All-Star break. And whenever I think of ahead of schedule teams in Ohio sports as an Ohio sports fan, I think of the 2014 Ohio State Buckeyes with uh, obviously freshman quarterback JT Barrett. He gets hurt. They have to go with Cardale Jones in the Big Ten Championship, the playoff against Alabama, and eventually the national championship against Oregon. Sophomore Ezekiel Elliott, the amount of talent on that team. The t- that team was supposed to win in 2015, but Urban Meyer rallied those troops, and that team won in 2014. They won the national title kind of ahead of, ahead of schedule. And that's what the Cleveland Guardians are kind of managing right now. This season is a thread-the-needle season. The Guardians don't want to rebuild, but this is a retooling season for the Guardians. They are trying to play young guys right away. And you know with young players in baseball, there is always going to be some growing pains. We've seen slumps out of Steven Kwan. We've seen a slump from Oscar Gonzalez before he got hurt. It happens to young players. But the Guardians are trying to have those young players produce immediately, get them significant playing time at the major league level, and also compete. And so far in the first half of the season, they did a pretty good job of that. But can it continue into the second half? That's what's going to be answered. But another reason why this, these three series are going to be very telling for if this Guardians team can compete for the playoffs, if they're going to be sellers or buyers at the trade deadline is because the the three series, they got four against the White Sox, four against the Red Sox, and three against the Tampa Bay Rays. It's because those are the three teams right now that are competing for a wild card spot along with the Cleveland Guardians. We mentioned that the Guardians are two games back of the Minnesota Twins in the for the American League Central as the Guardians right now sit at 46 and 44 with, with the Twins are 50 and 44. Guardians are tied in the loss column with the Twins. But in the, the wild card race is close as well. Obviously, the Seattle Mariners have burst onto the scene with a 14-game winning streak, and they have taken a kind of a stranglehold, a mini stranglehold, I would say, of one of those wild card spots. Is I believe the Mariners right now are 50 and 42. But then you've got a number of teams competing for that second and third wild card spot. If you remember, there is an extra playoff spot in Major League Baseball this year, which was agreed upon in the new collective bargaining agreement. So instead of two wildcard spots, there is going to be three wildcard spots, which means there's an extra playoff spot this year, which means there are going to be more teams that think they can go for it. But right now, when you look at the American League wildcard standings and you take a look at which teams, in my opinion, realistically have a shot at it, there's going to be about five or six teams that I can see being there at the end. Obviously, some might need to make some additions to their roster, might need to make some moves at the trade deadline to be there. But we're going to start, obviously, with the, the Seattle Mariners, who I believe hold the top wildcard spot right now. It's actually Tampa Bay in first. So Tampa Bay won the Tampa Bay Rays. They've been they were in the World Series a couple years ago. They have a great, great pitching staff, especially. Shane McClanahan started the All-Star game for the American League on the mound. And then you got Seattle, who's in the second wildcard spot. The Toronto Blue Jays, who, if you guys remember, was my preseason World Series representative out of the American League. And then I think the Boston Red Sox and the Cleveland Guardians and the Chicago White Sox are the six teams that are going to be competing for those three wildcard spots. You have a nice run by the Baltimore Orioles who won 10 games in a row recently. I don't think they're in it to compete for a playoff spot this year. I just don't. They've got too many young guys and not enough veteran leadership and proven stars at the major league level, both in their pitching staff and in their lineup to, to compete this year. But they are a couple years away. But you look at Tampa Bay, Seattle, Toronto, Boston, Cleveland, and the Chicago White Sox competing for those three wildcard spots. And you, as the Guardians sit two and a half back of Toronto for the third spot right now, and you sit here saying their next 11 games, their first 11 games out of the All-Star break are against 
three of those teams that they're going to be competing for for the wild card spot. So these three series are going to be very, very telling for the Cleveland Guardians. Now, where do I see this team going this year? I think this team is going to be in it to the bitter end. Now, I'm not going to predict that they're going to make the playoffs or anything. I think there is still some holes that need addressed on this team before we start talking about an American League Central Championship, a wild card berth in the playoffs. But this team is going to compete. This team thinks they can win. They're learning how to win right now. We've seen some uh, bumps in the road. Obviously, we had the highs of the highs this season when they beat Minnesota in Minnesota and they had that dazzling road trip against Colorado, the Dodgers in Minnesota, where they took two out of three from the Dodgers, swept Colorado, and then took three out of four against the Twins and catapulted themselves to first place in the American League Central. We had the other high of when Josh Naylor and Andre Semenez walked off the Twins back-to-back days. But we've had some lows this season for the Cleveland Guardians as well. Most recently, when they lost six games in a row and lost, went one and six against the Detroit Tigers and the Kansas City Royals. So that's what I expect the rest of the season. It's a roller coaster with this team. There's going to be some highs. There's going to be some lows. Can they end the season on a high is the main question I have. And I think they can. They've been playing better baseball as of late. They won their last three games going into the All-Star break, sweeping the Detroit Tigers. I was at Progressive Field for one of those games. And the thing that I saw in the game I went to is the 6-5 win for the Guardians over the Detroit Tigers is fight. This team fights. They always fight to the last out. And that's what the second half of the season is going to be, guys. It's going to be a fight for this Guardians team. It's not going to be easy. I wouldn't probably pick them to make the playoffs today. But they're going to fight until the very end. And that end could happen in October. This team is a couple of moves away from being contenders. True World Series contenders. But right now they are playoff contenders and they are learning how to win. But they have the leadership. They have a bona fide superstar in Jose Ramirez. They have two, in my opinion, pitchers who can go out there and put a team on their back in Shane Bieber and Tristan McKenzie. They have the best closer in baseball in Manuel Clase. They have some young budding stars in Josh Naylor and Andre Jimenez. They can just get some more consistent contributions from the rest of the guys, like a Fran Miel Reyes. I think this Guardians team has a chance, and I say they're going to fight to the very end. If they somehow fight and make the playoffs, which I think is a possibility for this Guardians team, anything can happen in October. Because it's baseball. Anything can happen on any given day. And that's the beauty of baseball. All right, so let's move on to talk a little bit about the Guardians and the trade deadline before we get into kind of the home run derby and all the other stuff that happened in All-Star, the All-Star game that I wanted to talk about. So I, can, I think the Guardians should be buyers at the trade deadline with, a tw- with um, limitations, I'll say. Because... The Guardians have eight top 100 prospects in the MLB, top 100, MLB pipeline, top 100. They have one of the deepest farm systems in all of baseball. Are you willing to part with that young talent and those prospects who could be a part of this championship window that I believe is open until Jose Ramirez retires? Are you willing to part with them for a rental? And I would say no, but let's take a look at some targets I can see the Guardians going after. First one is from the Washington Nationals, and that's Josh Bell. First baseman, um, you guys remember former Pittsburgh Pirate? He hit 37 home runs in 2019. Uh, The Nationals will move him. He's got about a $3.9 million salary, so it's not too big of a pay a paid contract that the Guardians would be taking. Not too much money on the books if they wanted to trade for Josh Bell. And I think that would Josh Bell would allow the Guardians to... Obviously, he's a first baseman, but it would allow them to DH Josh Naylor more. And it could potentially um, cause them to maybe explore a Fran Mio Reyes trade. So Josh Bell is one name I like. He's hit the ball this year for the Nationals. The power numbers aren't what they were in 2019, but he can still get a hold of them, and he gets on base, and that's honestly all you need from a, a, a hitter and a player of Bell's caliber, especially getting him at a cheap price of $3.9 million. Another name that's been floated around for the Guardians is Trey Mancini. 
Uh, he's having a nice year for the Baltimore Orioles. You guys remember a couple of years ago, he was an all-star, participated in the home run derby, cancer survivor. So he is a very inspiring player to many people out there. Um, and he's having a nice little season for Baltimore. As I mentioned, they're 500 right now. They're still in that wild card race. They're still in that wild card mix. But I met, what I mentioned with the Baltimore Orioles earlier was the amount of young talent they had. And I think if there are guys like a Trey Mancini, who's a veteran, who's had su- some success in Baltimore, who could get you a decent trade return, if Trey Mancini is blocking playing time from some of those younger players who are maybe sitting in AAA or AA or who are just not getting everyday reps on your major league roster, the Orioles have too much young talent that I think the sooner the Orioles get those guys in the majors, the sooner their championship window is going to open. And I think they would be willing to part with the Trey Mancini, who's on the north side of 30, for the right price. And I think he makes sense for the Guardians team. Uh, he hits for average. He hits for power. He has above-average defense. He can play first base. He can play the outfield. He's a right-handed hitter. Um, I think he makes a lot of sense for the Guardians. And I would not be surprised if the Guardians call the um, Baltimore Orioles and see, try and kick the tires and do their due diligence on trading for a a Trey Mancini type player, but Trey Mancini is another trade target I like for the Guardians. So you got Josh Bell and Trey Mancini. And my list, of course, is glitching out here. So I apologize for the slight delay. But like I said, the Guardians cannot be too, too aggressive at this trade deadline for the exact reason that I mentioned earlier. I don't think that this Guardians team is a clear World Series contender this year. And so there are going to be teams at the deadline like the New York Yankees, like the Los Angeles Dodgers, who are making moves to win a World Series this season. The Guardians' moves, in my opinion, would not be just to try and win a World Series this season, but more so even, I think their their moves would be to kind of bolster their championship roster in the next three to five years because that's when the window will open, in my opinion. So I mentioned Mancini, I mentioned Josh Bell. Another name they could look for is Garrett Cooper, who's on the Miami Marlins. If the Marlins fall far enough out of the playoff picture, he's making around $1 million for the stretch run. He's arbitration eligible for a final time next winter. Um, so Garrett Cooper is another name. Christian Walker on the Diamondbacks, they're willing to trade him. Uh, and he could be kept around for two more years via arbitration as well. But those guys, Garrett Cooper, Christian Walker, Trey Mancini, Josh Bell, they're hitters who would make a positive impact on the Guardians lineup, and they would not require an overwhelming prospect return, and which would allow the Guardians to keep guys like George Valera, like Daniel Espino, um, and keep most of their, their untouchable prospects on this roster. And that's, I think, what the Guardians are looking to do, threading the needle, finding a way to get guys on the team like Trey Mancini, Josh Bell, who can help the team compete now, but also keeping those guys in the minors like George Valera, like Daniel Espino, like Logan T. Allen, like Bo Naylor, in the minors, letting them develop because you know they're going to be a crucial key piece of the championship window that's going to stay open until Jose Ramirez's seven-year contract runs out. So that's my little second-half preview for the Guardians. Um, Let's talk about the Home Run Derby because – We talked a little bit about the All-Star Game. Before we get to the Home Run Derby, actually, let's talk about what else I liked from the All-Star Game. I thought Fox did a fantastic job on the broadcast. First thing I noticed in the broadcast, though, was when the announcer was announcing all the starting lineups for the American League and the National League before the game. I think it's really cool when they do that, announce all the players and stuff. It was weird without it being Joe Buck. Um... Obviously, Joe Buck decided to go with Troy Aikman to ESPN to do Monday Night Football. They offered him a ton of money. I don't blame the guy. But Joe Buck was always, I feel like he got a bad rap as a baseball announcer. I felt like he was that big game voice in baseball. And hearing someone else do the All-Star game was a little bit weird. But the broadcast knocked it out of the park. They did some really, really cool things. Um, They had an ump cam where the umpire was wearing a camera and you got to see the pitch from the umpire's camera. It was really, really cool seeing that that vantage point that the batter sees and also the catcher sees. 
it was really, really cool and gave you kind of an appreciation of how, A, how hard it is to hit a baseball off All-Stars, and B, how good those pitchers are. Number two, I loved, loved, loved them interviewing players during the game. Now, I think this might only work during an All-Star game setting, but my two favorite interviews they had, one was with Alex Manoa, who's a starting pitcher All-Star for the Toronto Blue Jays. He was talking to the lead broadcaster and John Smoltz, and he was just having fun out there on the mound. He even had John Smoltz call a couple pitchers for him, and he threw him. It was really entertaining. Uh, and it, you got to see Manoa talk to some of the uh, the hitters he was facing. It was really, really entertaining. And it was also really cool, Jose Trevino and Nestor Cortez of the New York Yankees. Cortez was on the mound, Trevino behind the plate catching. They were both mic'd up at the same time, and we were able to hear them going through how they were going to attack each batter pitch sequences, kind of like how they do in regular games. Obviously, that pitch comm that the catchers now have in their helmets and that the pitchers have in their ears, in their hats, is um, the way that they communicate pitches now. But hearing them talk out loud was really, really cool and gave some fans kind of an interesting window into the game of baseball. And I think the MLB does it better than any other sports league. I think the MLB All-Star Game is always the most entertaining I think it's the biggest deal out of any of the All-Star games. Fox knocked it out of the park. The MLB did a great job as well. The Home Run Derby was great as well and had some great moments too. Um, Julio Rodriguez, it was his night. Uh, He obviously is the rookie sensation for the Seattle Mariners. And a lot of baseball fans probably haven't heard of the guy. Obviously, the Mariners are a West Coast team, so they play their games past 10 p.m., which on the East Coast is pretty late for people, especially people who work in the morning. Um, So they don't probably watch a lot of his games, but this kid is a star. Um, He's going to be the rookie of the year. He was an all-star. He's hit 293 with 16 home runs, 46 RBI since the month of April. And he is one of the best young players in the league, only 21 years old. And he burst onto the national scene on Monday night in the Home Run Derby. He had a whopping 32 home runs in the first round, 30 in the second round, finished with 81 home runs. Before Julio Rodriguez on Monday night, there were four ever 30 home run rounds in the Home Run Derby history. Rodriguez hit two on Monday night. He absolutely won the night. Um... And he's only making a base salary of $700,000 this year because it's his first year in the big leagues. He made more money finishing finishing as the runner-up in the Home Run Derby as he made $750,000. And I think it was a big night for Julio Rodriguez not only to get his show, his peers, the All-Stars, what he can do to show the national audience what he can do, but it's also a good market marketability campaign for the rookie. Um, burst onto a national scene, performed at the highest level, made himself some money. I think he absolutely won the night in that regard. One of my favorite moments from the Home Run Derby was Albert Pujols hitting in the Home Run Derby. He faced Kyle Schwarber in the first round. Schwarber was the one seed. Pujols was the eight seed. And a lot of people were were, were making jokes about Pujols saying, oh, he's not even going to hit five home runs. He's not even going to he, – he, he's going to – be way too tired after 10 swings to continue, which, you know, obviously Pujols is 39 years old. He's been in the, the league for almost 20 years, I think, uh, but Pujols turned back the clock. So he hit 13 home runs in his first, um, what do they call it? First r- like rotation, uh, the two minutes plus the bo- 30 second bonus time or three minutes or whatever it is. So he hit, he hit 13 home runs and then Schwarber, struggled but hit 13 so then they had a swing off and this was after Albert Pujols after his round he got a standing O his first round he got a standing O all the other all-stars gathered around him and started kind of you know talking to him showing their respect to one of the game's all-time legends but Pujols got another chance because him and Schwarber were gonna have a swing off which was a one minute extra time period and Pujols got hot he hit seven home runs and hit a total of 20 home runs, and he hung on to beat Kyle Schwarber, advanced to the second round. And it was it was just a great moment for Albert Pujols to show, hey, man, I've been that guy. I'm still that guy. I could still be that guy. 
Um, and then the winner, of course, of the Home Run Derby. We'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the winner. But, you know, Jose Ramirez did face the winner, Juan Soto, in the first round of the Home Run Derby. Jose hit right-handed, which I'm not sure why. Jose hit 17 home runs in the first round. But he hit right-handed, although this season he has, 20, he has 19 home runs. Um, and he's hit 16 of those from the left-handed le- – le- Swinging left-handed. So I thought he should have hit left-handed, but maybe he didn't want to ruin his left-handed swing, one. Maybe his thumb, which he's had a lingering thumb injury all season, maybe it felt better swinging right-handed. So I'm not going to criticize Jose. But he represented Cleveland and the Guardians well in the home run derby. But Juan Soto was the winner. Soto beat Jose in the first round, beat Albert Pujols in the second round, and outswung Julio Rodriguez in the third round to take home the Home Run Derby title. I mentioned earlier in the episode, Juan Soto has become the biggest story in baseball, but not for winning the Home Run Derby. It is because he is potentially going to be out of Washington. Juan Soto, obviously generational talent, one of the top five players in baseball, maybe the best pure hitter in baseball. He's only 23 years old, already has won a World Series, already has been an All-Star twice, a home run derby champ. He declined a 15-year, $440 million offer for an extension with the Washington Nationals, and the Washington Nationals are apparently now open to trading him. Which means there are 29 other teams in baseball who are interested in adding a Juan Soto to their team. Is it plausible for every team? Absolutely not. The Nationals are asking for a, according to ESPN's Jeff Passan, a quote-unquote Herschel Walker-type haul for Juan Soto. And rightfully so. A generational talent who is 23 years old or younger never becomes available in the major leagues. Never. The fact that Soto's available is huge. Teams feel like they are Juan Soto away from winning a World Series. And he's that young that you can build around him and sign him for the next 10 to 15 years and not worry about him getting old and making that contract, which is going to be half a billion dollars worth it. The Nationals are asking, I read this today, for at least, I believe it was three of your first four top prospects. It was either three of your three, your three top prospects or your four top prospects. And also, young, major league-ready players who have had some success at the major league level. Obviously, not a lot of teams have a great farm system, so the Nationals are going to want maximum talent return in this trade because they're trading away the face of their franchise, maybe the best hitter, maybe one of the best, not definitely one of the best, maybe the best all-around player in baseball in Juan Soto, who's only 23 years old. So they're going to want a haul. But obviously, every team's farm system is not created equal. What are some of the teams that I could think can get Juan Soto realistically and pay him and extend him? The San Diego Padres come to mind. They have a top 15 farm system. I believe it's around 14 or 15. They have the money. They've proven it by signing Manny Machado and Fernando Tatis. They have a win-now-ready roster that Juan Soto would want to play for. And they have some young guys that they can ship to Washington and not feel bad about it because the Padres are in their window, in their minds. And they might feel like they are a Juan Soto away from winning a title. So the Padres are one team. The Dodgers obviously come to mind. They have everybody though the Yankees are going to be floated around the San Francisco Giants are a team that I can see they have a lot of exciting young prospects they don't really have that star player who's taking a lot of money off the books so they might they have the funds to extend Soto as well but let's talk about the Cleveland Guardians do I think the Guardians getting Juan Soto is viable and or a good idea for the Guardians team. I'll start this uh, segment by saying the Guardians should uh, and uh, Chris Antonetti, Mike Shirnoff should absolutely 
make a call to Mike Rizzo and at least kick the tires on Juan Soto. He's 23 years old. He's a generational talent in the game of baseball. You have to see what their asking price from your team would be because he is that good. Do the Guardians have the money to bring in Soto and extend Soto? Absolutely not. They've proven it before with Francisco Lindor. They're not willing to shell out $30 million a year to one player. They extended Jose Ramirez, but Jose is a special case. God bless his heart. He wanted to play here. He took less money to do so. But Juan Soto is turning down $440 million. So I don't think the Guardians have enough money to extend him. But do I think maybe the Guardians should trade for him for the two and a half years that are left on his deal and then just let him walk in free agency? I'm going to say no. And I'll get to that in a minute. But is it viable that the Guardians have the type of prospects and young talent that the Nationals want for Juan Soto? Yes. I mentioned earlier, the Guardians have eight top 100 prospects in the MLB top 100. They have some young guys like Andre Jimenez, Emmanuel Classe, Josh Naylor, Stephen Kwan, Oscar Gonzalez, Nolan Jones, the list goes on, that have had success at the major league level this season that would entice the Nationals. They have prospects like George Valera, like Daniel Espino, like Bo Naylor, like Logan T. Allen, like Gabriel Arias, Tyler Freeman, Brian Rocchio. The list goes on and on for the talented prospects this Guardians team has. They have a lot of farm system depth. So from a purely player standpoint, do the Guardians have the ammunition to bring in Juan Soto? They absolutely do. But I don't think it's the best move for this Guardians team. Now, I'm not saying the Guardians should not try and see what Washington would ask for, but in my opinion, you're not going to be able to extend Juan Soto beyond the two years that's left on his deal. One. Two, you're not going to be able to keep all of your generational prospects that could potentially be major league caliber in the next one to two years that will be crucial pieces of the championship team that the Guardians hopefully are assembling. They're not going to be able to keep George Valera, who when my who many have said, and I believe The Athletic wrote an article about this earlier this season, George Valera is the best Guardians outfield prospect since Manny Ramirez. You won't be able to keep Daniel Espino, who's the number 11th prospect in all of baseball, who in my opinion, just based off pure talent and pure stuff, could win multiple Cy Youngs. You're not going to be able to keep those guys. Is it really worth it to trade for Juan Soto, who, like I said, is a generational talent, for two years when you're giving up George Valera, Daniel Espino, players in the minors of those caliber, when you will have control of their contracts for the next seven to eight years? I just don't see it. I do not see it. I just don't think it's the right move for this Guardians team. With that being said, you absolutely have to check in and see if Soto's available. And who knows? Maybe maybe the Nationals change their mind. They don't want as much. But I think the Guardians have a team now that isn't ready to win a championship this season. But in the next two to three years, they're going to be a problem in the American League. They are going to make a World Series in the next five years with the current roster they have and the current prospects they have ready to make an immediate contribution when they get called up to the major leagues. I don't want to mess with that right now. That's just my opinion. All right, before we go to break, we got to talk about Aaron Judge. Aaron Judge is in the last year of his contract for the New York Yankees, as you guys well know. Judge bet on himself heavily this offseason when he declined a seven-year contract $214 million contract extension from the Bronx Bombers and decided to play out this season, see how he did, and he bet on himself. And to say it's worked out for Aaron Judge is an understatement. He hit 33 home runs in the first half of the year. He is the American League frontrunner for the MVP award. And he led the Yankees to the best record in baseball At the all-star break. But with that being said, contract extension talks between him and the Yankees have stalled. 
And before the All-Star game on Tuesday, ESPN's Marlo Rivera interviewed Judge and asked him a question regarding his future as New York Yankee. Here it is. And he has a son named Jacob who came up the other day really upset from his school in Astoria. He just came up race like, are you telling me that Aaron Judge may not be a Yankee after this year? What do you have to tell to Jacob right there and to all your fans that want you to remain in a Yankee uniform? Uh, I wasn't going to put you on the spot. I mean, we're on live TV. Yeah, no, Jacob, buddy. Um, you know, we got a lot of great Yankees on this team. You know, there are a lot of great Yankees be here for a long time you know so don't don't get hey don't be upset don't be upset hopefully you'll be a judge fan for life <laughs> thank you Aaron thank you for your time back to you guys so that was Aaron Judge before the all-star game talking to ESPN's Marla Rivera she basically said hey Aaron I talked to this 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 little six-year-old boy named Jacob who was very distraught and asked me you tell me there's a chance Aaron Judge might is not going to be on the Yankees next season and she asked him what do you have to say to Jacob and Aaron Judge said hey Jacob, you know, don't be sad. You know, there's a lot of great Yankees that you can root for. But hopefully when I leave, <laughs> you'll still be an Aaron Judge fan. That's what I took it as. And that's what a lot of Major League Baseball fans took it as. Is Aaron Judge leaving the Yankees? I don't know. But after playing that clip, it sure sounds like he's considering it. Because it did. he didn't sound very confident that he was going to stay with the Yankees based off that answer. He's having a remarkable season. The Yankees reportedly have not focused their shift to Juan Soto and are still focused on signing Aaron Judge. But Aaron Judge might not be interested in signing with the Yankees. Based off that clip right there, it'll be interesting to see where Aaron Judge lands. But that will be a thing after the season. But right now, a lot of speculation about Aaron Judge's future with the pinstripes the Bronx Bombers, and the New York Yankees. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Deshaun Watson news, Cleveland Browns news. You won't want to miss it, what it means for the Browns, and when we could get a potential decision from Judge Sue Robinson and the NFL regarding a Deshaun Watson suspension. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors at Anchor. Welcome back to Season 4, Episode 13 of the Jack of All Trades Sports Podcast. Presented by Anchor. The NFL season is closer than you might think. I believe it's only about 50 days away from when the Bills and Rams will kick off the season in Los Angeles on Thursday, September 7th, I believe. Or, no, I think it's September 8th. Thursday, September 8th. The Rams and the Bills will open the NFL season only about 50 days away. But the big question mark around the NFL, and for the Cleveland Browns is, will Deshaun Watson be suspended? And if he is, how long will it be? An update on the timeline, a little recap of where we were last week. Uh, Actually, it was two weeks ago last time I talked to you guys on this podcast. It was the end of the trial in which Deshaun Watson's camp and the NFL Players Association, along with Roger Goodell in the NFL, presented their findings to Judge Sue Robinson, and it was reported that the NFL showed no evidence of violence, coercion, or force in any of the five accounts that they reviewed for this case. It basically, in a short summary of the the trial, the media leaks that we've heard from is that the NFL did not do a very good job, and that Watson's side seems very much more optimistic after this trial that the NFL uh, presented via J- Judge Sue Robinson, who's acting as this uh, arbiter who is going to make the decision on how many Watson, uh, how many Watsons, how many games Deshaun Watson will be suspended. And last week, the post-trial briefs from the NFL and Deshaun Watson's team were due to Judge Sue Robinson, and Judge Sue Robinson, it's now all in her hands. We are now on Judge Sue Robinson's time as she is reviewing all the facts, both that were presented to her, that were given to her in the post-file briefings. She is reviewing those, and then she will come out with a ruling. It could be zero games, could be the whole season, could be anywhere in between, even longer than that, we don't know. It is ultimately her decision, the NFL and Watson, the only thing that they can do to ex- 
expedite this process is to come to a settlement. But I think a settlement is kind of growing very unlikely before Judge Sue Robinson's ruling, especially because Watson and his team think that he is going to get off with less than a year and potentially less than eight games. And that brings us to our first piece of news regarding Deshaun Watson. It came from Pro Football Talk's Mike Florio, who dropped this tweet yesterday morning. He said, quote, the current thinking from a source that has reviewed the materials presented to Judge Sue Robinson is that Judge Robinson's punishment will land in the range of two to eight games. So that means Deshaun Watson will be suspended anywhere from two to eight games. So this source who told Mike Florio this reviewed the materials submitted last week by the parties to Judge Sue Robinson. Two to eight games would be an absolute win, in my opinion, for the Cleveland Browns. There was a point where we thought he'd be suspended indefinitely. He'd be suspended for a year. Any Two to eight games, I would say less than half a season, gives the Browns a chance to make the playoffs this season. So that was the first report from Mike Florio. Two to eight games, two being on the lesser side, eight being on the heavier side. That was the range that... Mike Florio says this suspension will be in. Later that day, Mike Florio released another report which said the Browns in Berea, in in the team's office, are quietly bracing for Deshaun Watson to be suspended eight game. So that means that the Browns are expecting that two to eight games to be the real range for this suspension, but that it is going to fall at eight games and the Browns are quietly bracing for that. Um, obviously, that doesn't mean anything as to the eventual outcome. It only means that the Browns have come to the subjective conclusion that they would never admit publicly that it expects to not have Watson for eight of the 17 games in the 2022 season. So those are the two big reports we, we've had this week. One, that Judge Sue Robinson's decision most likely will be between two and eight games. And two, that the Browns internally are privately bracing for Deshaun Watson to be suspended eight games. Which begs the question, the important question, can you entrust the starting job to Jacoby Brissett for those eight games, or will they try to acquire someone else? Some names that have been kicked around the Browns include Cam Newton. Um, they include Jimmy Garoppolo. Um... Those are just some of the names that have been floated around. There are obviously plenty of questions that need to be answered for the Browns' plans for playing without Watson. The, f- the first answer that needs to arrive will be the s- specific number of games, if any, that Deshaun Watson will be suspended for. When could we get that decision? Well, it could be any day now. It could be in 10 days. It could leak into the first couple of days of training camp. Like I said, training camp starts in the next week and a half for the Browns. So there's a chance we don't have a decision by then. I've always thought the Browns hoped that they would have a decision before training camp so they would know how many reps to give, you know, Deshaun Watson and Jacoby Brissett and all that good stuff. But I think Judge Sue Robinson is very thorough. She's obviously a retired federal judge. She is going to make her ruling based off the facts. And I think her ruling is going to be the ruling that sticks. Um, there is this scenario, uh, I mentioned it before, if Judge Sue Robinson suspends Watson for any game, so anything more than zero, which seems like a likely scenario at this point, there that gives the NFL and Watson, but if I, I think if Watson gets anything less than 10 games, his side will not appeal. But the NFL still could. And how the appeal prospect uh, process works in this case, let's say Judge Sue Robinson suspends Watson for two games. We mentioned the two to eight game range. Let's say this is she suspends him for two games. Roger Goodell in the NFL said, "Think, man, we were pushing Watson to be suspended indefinitely for at least a year. Two games is way too little for us. That's not going to cut it." Goodell and the NFL could appeal Watson's suspension, and if it gets appealed by the NFL then it gets put into Roger Goodell's hands, and he acts as the judge 
jury, and executioner, and he can go ahead and suspend Watson indefinitely if he wants to. No matter what Judge Sue Robinson's ruling is, as long as it's not zero games. But I don't think that's likely, and here's why. Number one, Judge Sue Robinson acting as this third-party arbiter in a case of deciding a suspension, this deciding deciding a suspension for an NFL player like Deshaun Watson um, was agreed upon, legally agreed upon in the collective bargaining agreement between the NFL Players Association and the National Football League, which means. If the league and Roger Goodell appeal her decision without for uh, they appeal her decision and give him significantly more games, I think they're just showing a total lack of respect to the Players Association and a lack of respect to Judge Sue Robinson. I think it would be a bad PR look for the league. Number two. It is a sexual misconduct case. Just the optics, in my opinion, of Roger Goodell, a rich white billionaire who happens to be a man, overruling the thoughts of a woman on a sexual misconduct case seems a little bit like a bad look for the NFL. Quite frankly, I think it is a bad look if the NFL does that. So what I'm saying is, is it possible that the NFL appeals Judge Sue Robinson's ruling, which allegedly will be will be between two and eight games? Yes, it's possible. Do I think it's likely? I don't think it's likely. I think it would just be even more bad publicity for the NFL, which is, in my opinion, what they are going to be primarily suspending Watson for. I just think the optics of it wouldn't be great for the NFL. So I do think that Deshaun Watson will be suspended between two and eight games. And I think unless, I'll say this, if it's two games, I think the NFL will appeal. But I think if it's eight games, I think eight, I think eight's going to be the number. I think he will be suspended for eight games. And the reason is because I think it is the decision that will make both sides unhappy, which in my opinion, is the most fair decision in a case like this. And I think that would show Judge Sue Robinson that it is the right decision. Because the NFL has publicly been pushing for Deshaun Watson to be suspended indefinitely, suspended for at least a year. Eight games would feel significantly less than that, less than half of that. And they would feel kind of slighted. They would feel, you know, they would feel not happy about that outcome. And Deshaun Watson's side, who thinks he should be getting zero games is what they argued to Judge Sue Robinson, who feel very, very confident after the trial, because the NFL did not do a great job at the trial, who feel confident that they will get a low number of games. Eight games might feel a little high for Watson's side. So I think that will be the decision. I think he will be suspended for eight games. Which brings me to my next question. Can the Browns survive those eight games with Jacoby Brissett as their starter or do they need to bring in a Cam Newton or a Jimmy Garoppolo or kick the tires? Let's start with the Jimmy Garoppolo thing. Uh, the 49ers have cleared Jimmy Garoppolo to practice and have granted him permission to seek a trade. So Jimmy Garoppolo is officially on the chopping block, officially on the trade block for the 49ers. Um, do I think uh, Jimmy Garoppolo is better than Jacoby Brissett? Absolutely I do. Jimmy Garoppolo last season was one really bad decision away from making his second Super Bowl trip in three years. Now, that 49ers team, they had the best defense in football, in my opinion. Uh, some of the best playmakers around Jimmy Garoppolo with a George Kittle and a Debo Samuel and stuff. A great offensive line led by Trent Williams. Garoppolo was in a pretty much perfect situation in San Francisco last season. And obviously the years before that, when they went to the Super Bowl. But he still won games. He still played reasonably well for the most part, and he was able to manage games, manage that roster. People can say that the 49ers won in spite of him, but he you can't look at me and say that he didn't have an, an impact on those teams because he absolutely did. So the 49ers have given Jimmy Garoppolo permission to seek a trade. Um, the Browns obviously have uncertainty how long Deshaun Watson will be 
available, but Mary Kay Cabot of Cleveland.com is reporting the Browns are not expected to pursue a trade of Garoppolo. Um, Garoppolo has a base salary of $24.2 million this season. Um, the Browns seem to not have interest in paying him that much, and apparently they are comfortable with Jacoby Brissett holding down the fort, especially with the relatively easy first four games until Watson returns out of the that eight-game suspension that the Browns are bracing for. So it doesn't look like Jimmy Garoppolo will be a member of the Cleveland Browns or that the Browns will explore a trade for Jimmy Garoppolo. The only scenario in which I can see the Browns trying to explore a trade for Jimmy Garoppolo is if Deshaun Watson does get suspended for a season or indefinitely. Whether that be from Judge Sue Robinson, whether that be from an NFL appeal, if Watson's not available for the whole season, I think the Browns do their due diligence on Jimmy Garoppolo. Whether it be exploring a trade for him, whether it be waiting till San Francisco releases him and signing him, because I think you can survive eight games with Jacoby Brissett. I don't think you can survive 17 games with Jacoby Brissett. And the amount of talent you have on this roster, Nick Chubb, Miles Garrett, Denzel Ward, Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, Greg Newsom, Amari Cooper, Wyatt Teller, just to name a few. You cannot go wasting a year with all this talent on your roster knowing that you will not have all of it in the same place together forever. The championship window for the Browns is the five years they have Deshaun Watson. If they're without him for a year, it's still the window. In my opinion, Jimmy Garoppolo gives you a better chance to capitalize and go through the window than Jacoby Brissett would if the event Watson is suspended for the whole year, which, like I said, I don't see happening, so I don't think that's going to be a scenario that we see play out. Can the Browns survive Jacoby for, with Jacoby Brissett for the first eight games? Let's go through and play the schedule game. Assuming Deshaun Watson is suspended, for the first eight games, and that Jacoby Brissett will be the Browns' starting quarterback. We start in Carolina week one, the Browns at the Panthers. We're going to assume it's going to be Baker Mayfield, the starting quarterback for the Panthers. I think the Browns are going to win this game. Uh, I think the Browns are good enough to win this game with Jacoby Brissett, and I think that their roster is better than the Panthers. I think they should win that game. Week two at home versus the Jets, the Browns should win that game as well. Week three at home versus the Steelers. The Browns should win that game, even with Jacoby Brissett as well. With Mitch Trubisky and starting for the Steelers, I think the Browns should win that game. Week four at the Falcons, the Browns should win that game as well. So I can see the Browns starting off 4-0 with Jacoby Brissett. You can call me a homer, but those first four games are very, very easy. Then it gets tough week, weeks five through eight. Charges at home is going to be a loss with Jacoby Brissett. Patriots at home is going to be a loss with Jacoby Brissett. The Ravens on the road is going to be a loss with Jacoby Brissett. The Bengals at home is a toss-up. We'll say, I, I think it goes either way. So the Browns are either going to be 5-3 or 4-4, four and four in my opinion, in the first eight games with Jacoby Brissett. And I think that gives you a realistic chance to make the playoffs, knowing that you'll have Deshaun Watson coming out of the bye week for those final nine games. Assuming you're four and four, seven and two will get you to eleven wins. Six and three, which I think is very doable for Watson, will get you to ten and seven. Five and three would be even better. It would knock off one of those extra wins. But I absolutely think the Browns can survive with Jacoby Brissett for eight games. Do I think they need to bring in another quarterback? The only scenario and way I could see them bringing in another quarterback is if it is a backup to Jacoby Brissett. And that would be when you consider making a call to Cam Newton. Obviously, Newton's not the player he was in 2015 when the Panthers went 15-1. and Newton was the best player, the MVP on a Super Bowl team that went to the Super Bowl. Lost in the Super Bowl, but still went to the Super Bowl. He's not that same player. He His arm's kind of shot. He can't throw the ball downfield very well, but he has NFL experience, one. And two, you know, he's still useful in certain situations, and I think that would take some pressure off a Josh Dobbs, who is, you know, one snap, one injury away with Jacoby Brissett starting from holding the keys to the franchise, who's only taken about 15 NFL snaps. So, 
I could see the Browns bringing in a backup for Jacoby Brissett, but the only way I could see them bringing in a starter over Jacoby Brissett during a potential Deshaun Watson suspension is if Watson is suspended for the whole year, or maybe I'll say more than 10 games. That's just my opinion on the matter. But hopefully we get a decision from Judge Sue Robinson soon. Hopefully we get some clarity on this Deshaun Watson suspension situation soon. It feels like with the reporting and leaks that are coming out this week from Mike Florio, from different media sources, from Charles Robinson of Yahoo Sports, it feels like we are very, very close to a decision. It feels like we are almost there. And that is good news because I don't know about you guys, I'm ready to start talking about actual Browns football and not just talking over and over again about the suspension. That's just my opinion. And that is going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram at JoteSportsPod. That's at J-O-T SportsPod. You can give me a follow on Twitter at TheRealJBurns with a Z. That's at TheRealJBERNZ. Or you can follow my TV Twitter for my television ventures at TV. You can also go ahead and email the podcast if you want to. If you have any questions, concerns, comments, or anything you want to leave about the show, you can go ahead and email jackofalltradesports at gmail.com. That's jackofalltradesports at gmail.com. Be sure to follow, like I said, the podcast and Instagram. I'm looking to start doing some more engagement with our Instagram followers, maybe some Ask the Show where you guys can ask questions. I'll read them on air, answer them on air, you know, stuff like that. Some very interactive, maybe some Instagram story polls, stuff like that. want to interact more with the, the listeners of this show. We have some very exciting interviews lined up as we get closer and closer to NFL season. So I'm excited to unroll those out for you guys. We're going to have an extensive preview episode, um, both with the Browns and with the NFL. We're going to have a couple of interviews for those. So it's going to be exciting, but be sure to follow the podcast and Instagram to get updates on all those. And be sure to make sure you rate this podcast five stars. If you like what you're listening to on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, you can support the podcast. Feel free to support the podcast. I appreciate all your guys' support, but there's a support button on Anchor. If you guys do want to support this podcast to help me fund future episodes, that's certainly something I would uh, not ask you guys to do, but if you would do that, it'd be very, very appreciative of you guys. And yeah, thank you guys for listening to this week's episode. We will be back either next week or the week after. As soon as that Watson news drops, we will do an episode emergency. No matter what I'm doing, I could be sleeping. I could be at work. I will do an episode as soon as I can. Once the Watson news is announced, Um, But we'll be back with another award-winning episode covering all things Cleveland Guardians, all things MLB, NBA, NFL, like you guys come to expect either this week or the week after. But until then, I hope you guys have a great, great couple weeks, great week. Uh, Do something fun. Do something nice for each other. And we will see you guys next time. I've been Jack Burney signing off. Jack of all trades sports.